The Water Values Podcast is sponsored by the following market-leading companies and organizations. By Xylem, Let's Solve Water. By the American Water Works Association, dedicated to the world's most important resource. By Black & Veatch, building a world of difference. By Ziptility, the only app utility crews need to find, fix, and manage infrastructure assets from the field. And by Intera, geoscience and engineering solutions. This is session 172. Welcome to the Water Values Podcast. This is the podcast dedicated to water utilities, resources, treatment, reuse, and all things water. Now here's your host, Dave McGimsey. Well, hello and welcome to another session of the Water Values Podcast. As my daughter Sarah said, my name is Dave McGimsey and thank you so much for joining me. And I hope this finds you safe and healthy amidst the public health crisis we're still finding ourselves in. Now, today, Cynthia Kohler of Water Now Alliance joins us. She's the executive director and she provides great insight and enthusiasm in describing Water Now Alliance and its new program, Tap Into Resilience. You're going to want to check this out. Uh, uh, Cynthia is also a water utility board member herself, so she has a, a great deal of practical knowledge about utilities, and you'll be easily able to tell uh, from listening to her that she is a creative thinker. She thinks outside the box. Uh, it's just a terrific interview, and you're really going to enjoy listening to Cynthia share some of her knowledge with you. But before we get to Cynthia, we have a Bluefield on Tap episode. Uh, recall again that we didn't have it at the beginning of the month. Uh, we saved it for this episode. Uh, and we have Eric Bindler on who's going to discuss uh, some of the latest market intelligence out there concerning uh, water technologies. Uh, before that, we also have a little housekeeping. First, this is the last episode before my summer hiatus. Next episode will be in August. So I'm taking July off again. Um, thank you for use. Thank you for for listening, and please use the time to catch up on back episodes that you may have missed. And also, again, a hearty thank thank you to our sponsors. Again, those sponsors are Xylem, the American Water Works Association, Black and Veatch, Ziptility, and Intera. And I'd like you to do me a favor: if you work for or with any of the sponsors, please thank them. Thank your boss. Thank your contact at the sponsor. Uh, and let them know that you just appreciate their their leadership in the industry through the sponsorship. You'd be surprised how far that simple note of thanks can go. And as long as you're letting the sponsors know you appreciate their support of water industry education and thought leadership, why not leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, CastBox, whatever uh, uh, podcast directory you're listening to the podcast on. That'd be much appreciated. And it'd be uh, a great way to help others find out about the podcast. Now it is time for this month's Bluefield on Tap segment with Bluefield Research's Eric Bindler. Well, Eric Bindler, welcome again to the Water Values Podcast and the Bluefield on Tap segment. How you doing? Doing great, Dave. Thanks a lot for having me. Uh, you, pleasure. Oh, yeah. It's great. Always great to have you guys on. Uh, so, uh, Eric, wh what are you guys working on? What's, what's kind of on Bluefield's mind these days? Sure, absolutely. So, I mean, I think, you know, not surprisingly, we've been doing a lot of research on different angles of, of uh, the COVID-19 pandemic and what that means for the water industry, for the utility sector, uh, for vendors, for, you know, for, for services, for service providers, things like that. And so a big question that's come up from, you know, from a number of our clients and other contexts in the industry is just kind of the, the utility revenue and, and billing piece. You know, what does this crisis mean for uh, for utility finances moving forward, for revenue generation, 
um, as well as for you know the the role that digital solutions, uh, which is kind of my my wheelhouse uh, in the Bluefield uh, in the Bluefield family, um, you know what what digital solutions can kind of play in in helping utilities deal with some of those challenges. Yeah. So. Can you can you expand on that kind of where your research is focused? You know, in terms of how uh, the the digital side is helping with uh, utility financials and and uh, you know even more important, you know, the customer engagement and and making sure that the customers feel like uh, they're they're being looked after. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so so maybe just to start with a couple kind of big picture stats that I think are important to frame the conversation. So I'm sure you've seen, uh, and I'm sure many of your listeners will have seen those AWWA surveys that have been coming out over the past couple of weeks on uh, just kind of temperature checking the utility sector on on how they're handling the COVID-19 crisis, the big issues that are emerging. And, and I think one of the, the really telling uh, differences between the first survey that was done in like mid-March versus the third survey that was done in like mid-April was just the extent to which utilities are expecting revenue shortfalls. Um, you know, the first survey in mid-March, only about 14% of the utilities that were surveyed said that they were anticipating any type of like budget or revenue challenges um, with, you know, the remaining 86% saying that they didn't expect that to be an issue. By the third survey a month later, 73% of the utilities surveyed were either already having revenue issues, you know, cash flow issues, or anticipating those in the next several months. So, you know, it's this, this really big change in how utilities are kind of perceiving this crisis um, and, and the issues that they're facing. You know, and then when we think about what those impacts might actually look like, um, there's a lot of numbers out there, a lot of kind of um, estimates have been made of, of of what the revenue impact could be for utilities. It, it varies quite a bit, um, as, as you know, some of your previous guests have, have kind of mentioned. It varies quite a bit by the type of utility, by the kind of composition of the customer base. Um, and I think actually uh, Massachusetts, where, where Bluefield's based, is a really great example. Um, the Massachusetts Water Resources Authority put out uh, a report looking at, you know, consumption across the service area for more urban versus more kind of suburban communities. And and in some cases, you know, the city of Boston, which has a really heavy commercial and industrial user base, um, saw their, their water down about 14%, um, you know, between March and May, kind of relative to, to prior years, whereas residential communities actually saw like a 17% increase in, um, in, in water consumption. And so, Obviously, there's there's you know significant differences in in what all this means for utilities based on that kind of cu- customer base, um, but overall, I mean, at a top line, I think even when you factor in increased residential consumption, you're also looking at non-payment in many cases as as unemployment rises, as you know, utility customers are kind of foregoing those bills, particularly in light of all of the kind of shut off moratoriums that have been put in place, um, and so we're kind of. Pre- expecting at a top line, you know, anything from maybe 15 to 20%, maybe even 25% revenue declines for the utility sector uh, due to this crisis. Yeah, I, I think that's that's exactly right. And uh, so getting back to, you know, I think you framed it up real well. And getting back to kind of the the, the question in terms of how the digital side, you know, what, what how is that going to help us, um, you know, with how that can help the utilities with the financial side? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so th- there are a couple of different dimensions to it. I mean, the, the 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 spectrum of technologies that are available for for billing, for customer management, for customer information system uh, processing, you know, data management. There's there's really kind of a broad range of, of technologies that play there. But I think you know a couple really important kind of cases to point out. Um, you know, on the one hand, for for utilities. You know, at a very basic level, just enabling, uh, you know, enabling utilities to offer remote bill pay is, is huge right now, right? Because a lot of utilities are, you know, they're shutting down, 
their their customer service centers, their kind of their bill pay counters, right? Customers can't go in and pay in person anymore as, as maybe they were accustomed to doing in the past because of social distancing mandates and lockdowns and things like that. So just, you know, having the functionality to to enable customers to pay online is, is certainly helpful, uh, you know, in, in light of, of what's going on with COVID-19. And then just more broadly, you know, giving customers the as many channels to pay as, as quickly and as conveniently and as easily as possible is, is really important right now with, you know, with, with that expected revenue crunch, you know, making it as easy as possible for customers to, to be able to go on and pay, sending kind of multi-channel reminders, targeting customers, reminding them of, of their bills, you know, to, to really make sure that no dollars are left on the table, that customers that, that are able to pay right now are, are you know, kind of uh, prodded and, and, and reminded as much as possible, you know, and, and, and given as many options to pay and as many opportunities to pay as possible. Like all of that is really going to be helpful for, you know, ensuring utilities are able to recover as much revenue as they can during this period. Um, and then, you know, you also have to look at it from the perspective of, of households, from customers themselves. Um, there are a number of really interesting providers out there that are offering customer engagement software that that enable utility customers to actually track their own, uh, you know, household water usage kind of in real time or maybe on a, on a daily basis at least. Um, you know, they get kind of personalized tips and recommendations for for saving water for conserve, you know, for for reducing their water footprint. They may get um, automated alerts when when there's you know kind of anomalies, billing anomalies, or activity that that might be consistent with a leak. Um, so actually, you know, putting those tools in the hands of customers to be able to make sure that they're, you know, using water efficiently, saving money, you know, particularly for for cash-strapped households that may be dealing with job losses or, or you know, unemployment things like that. Um, you know, all of that is, is super important right now, and all that does, you know, certainly feedback to the utility. It kind of helps helps build customer satisfaction, goodwill, um, maybe kind of increase that long-term willingness willingness to pay, which is always a, a sticky issue in the water sector. Um, I don't know if you saw, and, and again, I'm, I'm I'm sure that that you did the, the recent JD Power survey um, that came out that showed I think it was a whopping 25% of uh, of U.S. customers surveyed refuse to drink tap water, right? So there's this massive PR problem in, in the water industry. And so, you know, one of the other numbers that came out of that survey that I think was really interesting and relevant to what we're talking about here was that customer satisfaction uh, for those customer surveys was about 10% higher for utilities that are approached using digital communication channels, right? So again, these digital tools, these kind of multi-channel tools for reaching out to customers, for kind of keeping utilities, keeping bills top of mind, really have kind of both immediate revenue recovery benefits, but also kind of longer term reputation and, and kind of willingness to pay benefits uh, for utilities. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And, and um, it was very interesting. I, I don't know if you saw, there was a post on LinkedIn by Rob Barnett of drop counter and, and they, he analyzed some um, consumption patterns uh, using the, the drop counter uh, software where I he, he said exactly what you did that, you know, consumption was up uh, in the residential sector and they were kind of comparing things uh, and, and identifying, you know, guess what, you know, essentially kind of a guess what state had the highest increase in, con, in residential consumption. So it, I, I didn't tie that together until you started, started going down that path, but very interesting stuff. Um, well, Eric, as always, Bluefield Research does a great job uh, providing kind of these these uh, just-in-time or current event type uh, segments. So I really appreciate you guys coming on and uh, making some time to, to share with us what you're seeing out there in the market. So appreciate your time. Thanks so much, Eric. Absolutely, Dave. Thanks a lot. Uh, stay well and, and talk to you soon. Yep, you bet. Take care. Bye. <laughs> 
as always, great information from Bluefield Research. Uh, this time, Eric Bindler sharing his uh, some insights with us. Now it's on to our feature interview again with Cynthia Kohler of the Water Now Alliance. So let's get that water flowing. Well, Cynthia, welcome to the Water Values Podcast. Great to have you on. Uh, how you doing today? I'm doing really well, David. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be talking to you. Oh, it's great to have you on. Uh, for starters, can you tell folks a little about who you are and how you got interested in water? Sure. So I am Cynthia Kohler. I am the executive director of Water Now Alliance. Water Now is a network of water utility leaders who represent um, decision makers at uh, across the one water spectrum, drinking water, wastewater, and stormwater. And we focus on them because they represent 95% of spending nationally on infrastructure. So these really are the leaders who can make all the difference in terms of um, advancing um, sustainable, climate resilient, and affordable water solutions. Um, so you asked how I got interested in water, and um, I think I've always uh, been um, interested in sustainability and environmental health. Uh, that's I really I went to law school. I actually have an environmental law certificate, so I knew that's where I wanted to uh, the direction I wanted to take my career. And then water is just something I evolved into over time. But what really um, launched Water Now is that in addition to being a water lawyer and an environmental advocate, I was recruited about 15 years ago to run for my local water utility board. So I also wear that other hat. I'm a decision maker myself. And um, it became clear that there really wasn't, um, there are all kinds of water organizations out there, excellent ones, especially on the industry side and NGOs, of course. But there really wasn't a place for water um, leaders like myself, people in that political space, to um, really learn about um, uh, the, the more innovative solutions that were coming up around resilience, and particularly in the face of climate change, um, and to really connect. So that's the niche that Water Now is filling. Well, terrific. So uh, you've got a new program out there called Tap into Resilience. Can you tell us a little about that program? Absolutely. I'm so glad you asked. So Water Now is a relatively new organization. We're not quite five years old. And we've gone from uh, you know a beginning where we, six of us sat around a conference room about four and a half years ago. And now we're 550 members in 38 states. And as I mentioned, our focus really is on helping water leaders you know, move into that more innovative, sustainable space. And what we realized early on is that the big opportunity around infrastructure um, is in distributed systems. And by that, I mean all of the things that are decentralized and consumer facing. So green stormwater infrastructure, um, you know, on private properties, on commercial and industrial institutional properties, um, water use efficiency measures, you know, lead line replacements on private properties. These are all things that have enormous potential to expand and supplement the functioning of our centralized conventional systems. I'm somebody that you know votes regularly on spending hundreds of thousands and sometimes millions of dollars on upgrading, uh, you know, conventional centralized you know water infrastructure. So we're going to have to keep doing that. But going forward, we're going to need to expand that portfolio of options. And that's what Tap into Resilience is all about. Um, it's a set of resources to help water utility leaders, but also their executive managers, their staff, <clears throat> and the broader water industry to really see the, the opportunity and the benefits that can come along with these distributed systems. But maybe I'll pause there and see if you've got any questions for me, but I can go into more detail about those offerings. Well, I'd love to go into more detail, but I, I, I will say uh, just, just from your initial description, it, uh, you mentioned stormwater, wastewater, things of that nature. So this is really kind of a one water uh, perspective on how to deal with infrastructure. 
Absolutely, no question about it. I mean, One Water is, I think, the direction that utilities are going and must go. Um, and for those of your listeners who are less familiar with the One Water concept, it's really very simple. It's the idea that <clears throat> all water is connected. And we've developed systems that have, in many places, kept our stormwater, drinking water, and wastewater separate. But the reality is that integrating management of those systems is going to be key to resilience in the future. And then the way that the distributed piece fits in <clears throat> is that many of the opportunities for integrating those systems are distributed. Many one water opportunities will be conventional uh, centralized infrastructure, you know, your, your you know, large recycling plants, for example. But many, many are distributed over communities. So on-site reuse, stormwater capture, all of the ways in which we are, we are integrating the use of our drinking water, wastewater, and stormwater systems advanced one water, the one water idea. And that's a big part of the impetus for tap into resilience and our focus on um, accelerating and expanding investment in uh, these distributed systems. What's the easiest way for someone that, you know, uh, one of these political uh, folks who, who are one of the decision makers for a utility or another quasi governmental body, what's the, what's the easiest way for them to kind of, you know, learn about this? Yeah, exactly. Tap in because, because so many, so I, I just feel like so many of these, these leaders don't have the, they have day jobs. They don't have the time to, to, to learn about all this stuff. And so they naturally gravitate toward the centralized infrastructure. How, how do you get started in the distributed water aspect of this? That's a, that's a great question. So water now, um, and the tap into resilience initiative have a bunch of layers to address exactly that challenge. So the easiest thing is we have a, in addition to our um, Water Now website, we have created actually an entire dedicated website around um, distributed infrastructure that we call, unsurprisingly, Tap Into Resilience. So you can just go right there. We have, um, and really my colleague Carolyn Cook gets a lot of the credit for developing this website. It's just an extraordinary um, wealth of information. So just to review some of those offerings quickly, we have what we call explainers that kind of go through what is distributed infrastructure, what are the different options. Um, we also have um, a library of resources because built into our DNA as an organization is partnership and collaboration. We're a small group and there's a lot of wonderful organizations out there, you know, both in the water industry, in the academic world, in the NGO world that are doing amazing things in this space. So we're trying to be that kind of one-stop shop. And so our resource library is there, easy to search. Caroline has done an amazing job pulling together case studies. When we survey our members and the broader water universe, what we hear is, mm, these things sound good, but I really, who's done this? And has it worked? And, you know, what do we know? And, you know, what's the data? So Caroline is putting together um, case studies in addition to, you know, the technical library that are, you know, easy to read, easy to access, and I must say, very colorful and interesting to look at. Um, but the main thing, I would say the heart of the Resilience <coughs> website is our toolkit. And that is where we really get into the nitty gritty, David, because it's all well and good to say, yes, you should be spending way more money on stormwater infrastructure on private property, or you should be really investing in rebates for commercial and industrial and institutional um, you know, water use efficiency upgrades, or you should go out there and replace all the lead lines on private property. That sounds great. And then when you get down to, okay, now how do I do that? Because it is different, right? Water utilities are, for the most part, there's always exceptions, but for the most part, Water utilities are very good at building infrastructure. They know how to do that. You float your municipal bonds, you get your SRF loans, you, you know, and you, you build that project. 
it is much more challenging when you say, I want to invest, you know, you know, millions of dollars in programs that are essentially consumer facing, right? All of the things that we're talking about in the distributed side are things that utilities don't generally own and operate. You know, when we're looking at putting, you know, many, many, you know, acres of stormwater, green stormwater infrastructure on private property, we're talking about homeowners, we're talking about businesses, we're talking about commercial enterprises. So now you're in a partnership. How do you fund that? How do you finance that? How do you control for that? You know, how do you do all the different things? Are there legal issues? And the answer is yes, it's pretty complicated. Um, so what we've done with our toolkit is, is basically provide a resource for, and this is really more at the staff level. We don't necessarily expect the political leaders to go through that. On the other hand, knowing that the answers are there is enormously important for those leaders. So the toolkit is a way of addressing financing, accounting, legal, technical, implementation, and other questions. It's highly interactive. And one of the great innovations in this toolkit, and I, again, want to give my colleague Carolyn Cook credit for this, is, and I don't know that anybody else is doing this, is we have what we call the expert portal. So that if you don't want to spend a bunch of time poking around um, a website, or you feel you've got something fairly unique, you just fill out a form that takes roughly 10 seconds, and you say, this is who I am, this is my utility, this is my question. And within a couple of days, we will connect you with an expert who will call you and help you with that. We have put together a cohort of over two dozen experts who have dedicated a certain number of pro bono hours um, to, to help utilities down the road with these things. So it's a, it's a lot of offerings. Um, and I can talk more about the other things, but the Tap into Resilience website is really kind of the heart of it. Got it. Got it. Now, is part of the problem or part of, I shouldn't say part of the problem, is, is one of the big issues getting to the consultants uh, who are advising these political leaders because it's, it's, I, I feel like the, for the political leader that does not have the technical background, they, in order to take that public stand, they need to have some, some backup and it's very easy to have their local consultant who or consulting engineer, who's been on their projects for the last 20 years, stand there and say that, yeah, this is the, this is the way to go. And, 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 and I should, should point out, I'm not trying to disparage engineers, right? You know, what I, it's just like anything else. There are uh, a section of them that are very progressive, very willing to try new things. And there are some that are just, you know, that that's the way they've always done it and that's how they're going to continue to do it. And so that's, that's the set I'm speaking to uh, with, with regard to that point. It's an, it's an interesting point, David. Um, so I think that as centralized infrastructure projects become more expensive and more challenging for local utilities to undertake, and believe me, there's always going to be plenty of work in that space. We're always going to have, you know, the pipes and the tanks and the pumps and, you know, the treatment facilities, you know, that, that, that workflow is not going to abate. But I actually think the opportunity for to consultants is going to grow. I'm not sure that, and there are definitely consultants that are beginning to see that for sure. Um, you're seeing um, new kinds of firms pop up, like our, our friends at Greenprint Partners, who are a private consulting firm dedicated entirely <clears throat> to um, helping utilities implement green and stormwater infrastructure at scale. So I think as the opportunities to um, expand how we think about infrastructure and the economic opportunities to actually um, do these projects at larger scale, I think you're going to see a shift in that uh, in the consulting world. Um, because they're going to go where the opportunities are. Got it. I, I, I think that's a very good point. I think uh, it just takes some education and some, right. some people getting in their comfort zones uh, in order to, to, to bring about the change. Um, Cynthia, if you could, could you kind of uh, uh, go down the road a little more on perhaps uh, talking about a specific project or 
that, that you've seen come to fruition? No, you know, better yet, better yet. Let me ask you this. Have, have you noticed different types of distributed water projects that are more suitable for different climates? Uh, you know, for example, California versus the Midwest versus the Southeast versus the Northeast, things of that nature. I mean, it seems to me there might be different types of, of projects that would, that would be amenable to those varying climates. Yeah, you really put your finger on it. It's, it's, it is, um, you know, some of these things are going to be universal, right? But even then with, for example, um, stormwater runoff is an issue nationwide. So green stormwater infrastructure is going to be something that is used broadly throughout the country. That said, the particular types of installations and the way and where you need them is going to differ. Um, you know, let me give you an example of a very large scale um, green infrastructure project. Milwaukee, right there in the middle of the country, has spent billions of dollars on conventional gray infrastructure. And you know, what's the what's the conventional system to take care of stormwater? I mean, they've got I don't know if you know Milwaukee, but it's surrounded by water. They've had very significant um, combined sewer um, overflows, so backing up into people's um, basements. Which is you know horrible and you know polluted runoff into the various water bodies around Milwaukee. So they've invested big dollars in um, deep tunnels to address this issue. But it hasn't. And it's helped definitely. You know it's not that there's you know it's not that it hasn't made a difference. But it's not getting them all the way where they need to go. At this point, their um, uh, gray conventional infrastructure captures something like 540 million gallons of stormwater. You know at a you know per storm. Um, but they have now done their own um, analysis and they've determined that the potential to capture and slow stormwater with green infrastructure is even higher. So they're making a commitment over the next decade, 15 years, something like that <coughs> out in the long-term future. It's, it's you know, relatively near term to install so much green infrastructure on properties distributed across the region that they expect to capture 740 million, so significantly more than their, uh, their gray infrastructure. So the opportunity there is large. You're not going to see necessarily that level um, in a place like Los Angeles, but Los Angeles is putting all kinds of green stormwater infrastructure in place because they get flash floods. So it's a different kind of issue, but a very similar set of, um, uh, you know, of options to address it. So they're investing in permeable pavers and in rain gardens and in um, you know, green roofs. All these things sound modest and small. The issue is scale. Right? We're used to thinking of scale in terms of let's build a big reservoir, let's build a big treatment plant, let's build an enormous desal facility, and there are certainly reasons to do those things in the right place and the right time. <clears throat> However, what we're also seeing is that many small projects distributed across a community can have the same and even more um, beneficial impacts um, you know, and results as that more centralized infrastructure, and there's a lot of co-benefits that go along with them as well. And that's part of what we're trying to bring to the fore for these political leaders who, unlike their staffs, and I say this as somebody who has enormous respect for my own staff here in California, but an engineering staff does not necessarily view these things with the same wide lens as the political leaders. So you're not necessarily focused on all of those co-benefits. Yeah, it's funny you brought up the deep tunnel projects. I was reading about another Midwestern uh, CSO uh, community where they spent all this money building the tunnels, and then because of climate change, the stormwater is uh, a, a the volume of stormwater is going to be significantly greater than what they dug the tunnel for, and so they're going to have to deal with this issue all over again. And uh, you know, uh, have, have you seen pilots or things like that? You know, you you talked about scale, and one of the things that I I think uh, could help are, are you know communities doing pilots. Um, 
with this type of uh, like, especially the big communities, if, if they just test it out in a certain area where there's, there's a lot of flooding, for example, uh, that may lead to broader adaptation. Do you have any kind of best practices for, for implementing a pilot? I really agree with that. And I think we're seeing pilots all over the country, <clears throat> sometimes in big places, but honestly, sometimes in smaller places, you know, one of the best pilots we've seen has been in um, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. They've been working on a green infrastructure for you know well over a decade and there was an EPA study documenting you know the extraordinary success they did a lot with again permeable pavers um, you know rain gardens bioswales all these ways of um, capturing stormwater before it can run off into um, you know into water bodies and into people's basements so uh, I think the best practices are to like you say pick an area but go big and that's that's what we haven't seen a lot of yet Milwaukee is going in that direction Philadelphia is starting to go in that direction. Los Angeles has got some projects. The challenge is finding ways to get communities to do them at large enough scale that you see the impacts in terms of these, these bigger benefits. The problem with small-scale pilots is they have small-scale results. Um, but I agree with you. The pilots are a way to um, get the decision makers more comfortable going in, um, in these directions. Green infrastructure has been along for, around for a while. I mean, there are a lot, there's a lot of innovation in that space, but... Um, the, uh, I, I think the issue of scale really comes down less to technology and more to funding. And that's an area where we at Water Now have spent a lot of time. One of the biggest barriers to going um, with green infrastructure or water use efficiency at scale is utilities can't figure out how to fund those things. As I said earlier, they're very good at spending capital on big centralized projects that they own. You float your bond, you get your capital, you amortize that over 30, 50, whatever it is years, and the the impact on your ratepayers is relatively mild, right? You're not, it's it's like your house. Almost nobody goes and says, I'm going to buy this house. Here's my cash today. I'm done, right? We get mortgages. And whether that's 15 years or 30 years, we are able to pay for that big investment because we have the opportunity to amortize those costs over time. It's really the same with infrastructure. So our whole um, premise for the last few years has been, we should be able to amortize the costs of scaling up investment in these distributed systems in the same way. And we've had a lot of success with the national rules on that. And so the current challenge is getting utilities to believe <laughs> that they can they can do that because it represents a very significant change in how we as an industry have paid for these distributed systems in the past because it involves, for the most part, incentivizing um, private uh, you know private property owners, whether it's residences or um, you know businesses or you know commercial practices or even other agencies, right? to um you know to undertake these these um these projects so that it's a different way of thinking about how to spend your money right right and uh you had mentioned lead service lines earlier as one of the uh, uh targets and and we've talked a lot about stormwater we've talked a little about wastewater uh I'd, I'd like to get into that drinking water issue can you can you talk about how how the tap into resilience uh, program can help with lead service lines Sure, absolutely. I mean, we see lead service line replacements, especially, again, here on private property. They're just another kind of distributed infrastructure, right? It, these are lines on private properties. So how do you pay for them? How do you get homeowners to take care of these things? This is enormously challenging. Most homeowners don't think, oh, I'm going to spend my Saturday jackhammering up my driveway to get, you know, to, get to my service line, right? So, um, and uh, these are lines, of course, that utilities put in often decades before. It's not as though the current homeowner had anything to do with it. So, um, but it is one of the most pressing um, health challenges for the country, particularly in disadvantaged communities and very often, as you're likely aware, in communities of color. 
So the issues there are even more pressing given the enormity of the health concerns. Um, so we see the opportunity for utilities to address these issues um, through, um, you know, by treating them as a form of distributed of, of infrastructure. So one of the communities that has shown the best results, the best results on this is Madison, Wisconsin. They, um, uh, you know, because of the federal requirements under the lead and copper rule, um, I'm gonna probably get my dates wrong, but it's at least a decade ago that they looked at their options and they said, you know, the best thing for us to do here is to simply replace every lead service line replacement in the city. And they were facing um, not only financial challenges, but legal challenges. There are all sorts of rules in place that limit how public agencies can spend money on private property. And they came up with a very, and I won't go into the particulars of the Wisconsin law, because there are good reasons for those laws to be in place. Don't misunderstand me. But we, all, we need to find a way to make exceptions for um, spending money on private property in ways that benefit the public generally. When you're replacing a lead service line, you're not doing, you're not doing a, a favor for the person living in that house. You are, you are complying with, a, with federal and state drinking water quality requirements. So it really does make sense for the utility as a whole to be paying for it. But running into these legal barriers has been challenging. And Madison came up with an extraordinary, extraordinarily uh, creative approach. They paid for it all with non-rate revenue. They were able to, um, they had some leases on, on various properties. Many utilities have other sources of income that are relatively small compared to their rate revenue. And Madison was able to pay for this program. And they um, simply dedicated themselves. And I think in less than a decade, um, they were able to replace every single lead service line in the community. And um, while it was expensive upfront, the benefit is that it was much less expensive than going an alternative route, which I, which I won't describe, that would have lasted for many more years. So they were able to address the problem fairly quickly, deal, you know, protect the health of their most vulnerable citizens, and in the long run, save their, um, save their communities you know, real dollars. So um, you know, we think there are any number of ways to, um, to help communities uh, find ways to um, finance um, this really critical uh, solution to this important public um, health emergency. Yeah, and you brought up an, an interesting com component of all this, and that's water equity. Uh, could you just expand a little bit? Uh, I, I know we're kind of running out of time, but I just w would like to, to to have you address kind of the water equity and how that relates into uh, your, your programming. Absolutely. We see large-scale, you know, if, if Tap into Resilience has any one you know, if you're going to sort of boil it all down and what's what's the purpose of this all, it really is to accelerate and expand, massively expand um, the <coughs> adoption of these distributed systems. <clears throat> We've talked a lot about stormwater, but water use efficiency is another huge piece. That's really where um, the opportunity for water use efficiency, again, really is national. You'll see different, um, uh, you know, different kinds of solutions in different parts of the country, but it's the, it's the same principle in terms of um, thinking about those measures as infrastructure. And we see all of it permeating and addressing the issue of water equity in several ways. For one thing, it, these systems are the quickest and most reliable ways to ensure that people do have access to safe, healthy, reliable drinking water supplies, sanitation services, and stormwater management. Um, so it is, they are, they are sort of more fundamentally um, uh, equitable in the sense that they are serving the community broadly. The other big piece of water equity that we see being served in the distributed sense is the co-benefits. So many water um, distributed water solutions um, bring along with them benefits. You're greening the community, you're cooling the community, you're um, uh, beautifying communities often when you're using green infrastructure. 
as far as water use efficiency, you're keeping rates affordable. It's almost always much less expensive to um, stretch your, your existing supplies rather than go out and buying that extra increment of, of cost for new supplies is almost always more expensive than water use efficiency. Lead line replacements, I think that speaks for itself in terms of the public health benefits. Um, the other big piece of water um, equity here um, is the local economic development. Um, big projects um, create jobs, but for a limited amount of time and for a limited number of people. Distributed water systems, you are right there in the community and you are touching ideally almost every property, right? So, and then there's long-term maintenance. Almost all of them have long-term maintenance issues. So the opportunities for these kinds of solutions to benefit communities economically, to spur job development and local economic development is very significant, particularly when compared with the alternatives. Cynthia, you have been absolutely terrific today. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, before before we kind of sign off, do you have any, um, uh, you know, parting words that you'd like to, to the listeners to kind of take home and really, really chew on? You know, thank you for that. Um, I really do. And that is, if I had any parting words, it really would be to... Um, you know, our idea here is to think differently about infrastructure. We're in a new world now, um, given climate change and, you know, the various other issues that we're facing. And the more that we can add to our thinking about what, um, what makes um, water systems work, as, you know, if we're going to do things the same way that we've done them in the 20th and, and uh, you know, 19th centuries, we're going to have problems. But this is the 21st century and we have amazing technology, we have amazing opportunities to make our water systems resilient in the face of climate change, to make them more equitable, to make them more affordable. And that is really about expanding what we think of as infrastructure. And that should include your house, your lawn, your business, um, you know, all of, all, you know, everything that we're doing can be thought of as infrastructure in many ways. And the more we expand that view, the more we think about infrastructure in that way, um, the more resilient we're, we're going to be. Terrific. Well, thank you again so much. You've been absolutely wonderful and it's been a really uh, great experience. I've learned a lot. Uh, and for those who want to find out more about you, more about Water Now Alliance, where can they go to get that information? And of course, more about the Tap into Resilience program. Where can they go to get that information? Absolutely. Our <clears throat> website is waternow.org and the dedicated website on distributed infrastructure is tapintoresilience.org. And if you want to join, you just hit the button that says tap in. Awesome. Well, again, Thank you so much. Really appreciate your time, Cynthia, and we'll talk to you soon. Great. Thanks, David. Great to be with you. Glad you're doing this podcast. Take care. All right. Thank you. Well, what a terrific interview by Cynthia. Her enthusiasm was contagious, and she combined that with great knowledge and examples of how our utilities can make tweaks to move us along the path towards sustainability and using green infrastructure uh, and distributed infrastructure. And, and the Tap into Resilience program is just a terrific opportunity for people and utilities to gain knowledge on the, those subjects. Well, let me know what you liked about the podcast. You can tweet about the podcast using the hashtag water values, and you can tweet at me using my handle at DTM one nine nine three. You can email me at david.mcgimsey at dentons.com and you can sign up for the newsletter at the website. So just Google the water values podcast and you should be redirected to the Bluefield research site. Again, Bluefield research has uh, been uh, a great help in, in uh, allowing me to host the website on their site. So thank you to Bluefield, but you can sign up for the newsletter uh, at that site. Uh, thank you again for tuning in and a huge thank you to our sponsors. Again, those sponsors are Xylem, the American Waterworks Association, Black and Veatch, 
Ziptility, and Intera. Great companies, great organizations. Uh, their support is truly appreciated. And again, don't don't forget, we're taking a hiatus until August. So the next episode will come out first Tuesday in August. Until then, have a great summer. In closing, please remember to keep the core message of the Water Values Podcast in mind as you go about your daily business. Water is our most valuable resource, so please join me by going out into the world and acting like it. listening to the water values podcast thank you for spending some of your day with my dad and me well thank you for tuning in to the disclaimer i'm a lawyer licensed in indiana and colorado and nothing in this podcast should be taken as providing legal advice or as establishing an attorney-client relationship with you or with anyone else additionally nothing in this podcast should be considered a solicitation for professional employment I'm just a lawyer that finds water issues interesting and that believes greater public education is needed about water issues. And that includes enhancing my own education about water issues because no one knows everything about water.